So instead of having to read that, we read the Mary, read the Mary passage. Turn with me to Matthew one. This is page eight oh seven in the in the ESVQ Bibles that you've got in your chairs and whatnot. Jews keep extensive genealogies, and they're really important for remembering your identity, where you come from, um, your history, who's in your family, your heritage, also your legitimacy, who is your dad, who's your mom, who's the grandpa, and your rights, um, what land belongs to you, all of that sort of thing. And here in Matthew, as he is also telling the same stories, what happens in Luke? Matthew wants to establish and demonstrate Jesus' legal claim to the throne of David. There's this great promise in Israel's days gone by for King David. David has this desire to build a house for God, like a temple. And God says, actually, I'm going to build you a house, by which he means a dynasty. There's this great promise that God extends to David. It says, from your line there will be a king who will reign forever, uh, reign on this throne. There will always be a good king of some kind. And that's why the, the rest of Israel's scripture starts going through all these kings. And you realize most of them are just meatballs, just the worst ever. And the whole, the whole country just becomes this whole gong show of nonsense, right? And so you're waiting with Israel for the king to come. And Matthew, it wants to make the point that Jesus actually fulfills this long-awaited promise of a king who will come. So that's what he's doing with this genealogy. And again, wanted to spare some of, some of the long, long list of names. This is happening just as the angel's also speaking to Mary. So as much as you've got that announcement happening, you've also got uh, God making sure that Jesus is coming into a family uh, that has this legal claim to David's throne. But look at the people. Just just scan your eyes if you can down this list of names. You can go over a couple. A lot of them have their stories fleshed out in the Old Testament. So the first one we get, verse 2, Matthew 1, verse 2, is Abraham. Abraham's the father of Isaac. Isaac's a miracle child. Right? Abraham and Sarah, they're past childbearing age. They're in their old age. They're not expecting kids. God says, nope, you're going to have a descendant. Sarah laughs it off like, yeah, right, that's not happening. Um, but the promise persists, uh, and, and, but they struggle with it. So what happens is you actually have a long period where God's promise doesn't seem to happen. And Abram and Sarah get their own ideas about kind of speaking things along. And so Abraham ends up having uh, a son through someone else. And uh, they're really not perfect, and, and it kind of throws things. They're trying to take matters into their own hands. They have their own kind of agenda, their own idea of what their life's supposed to be about. They aren't perfect. Abraham's not perfect. Sarah's not perfect. They stumble and fall. But God is faithful in redeeming their broken actions and weaving them into this story. Keep going. What about Jacob? Jacob shouldn't even be here. Right? Esau's the one who's firstborn. Jacob's a deceiver. And Rebekah, his mom, like Sarah before her, takes matters into her own hands. She conspires to get her favorite son a special spot. And God is faithful in poor parenting and messed up family dynamics to bring his purposes to pass. 
What about Judah? Notice what it says, verse 3. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, by Tamar. Uh-oh. It's interesting. Uh, he's tracing the family tree. Matthew's tracing the family tree through the guys. But he's specifically mentioning Tamar. So, heads up. If one of the girls gets mentioned, it's a big deal. Guess what? <clears throat> Tamar disguised herself as a prostitute, tricked Judah, her father-in-law, into sleeping with her, and bore his kids. So that's a messed up one. <laughs> you thought Abraham was bad. You thought Jacob was bad. This one's incest. Straight up mess. What's that doing there? Look at verse 6. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Oh! You know who that is? That's David and Bathsheba. That's a right mess. That's a story of adultery and lust and murder. Right? What's God doing here? If you wanted to make up a story about this person who was really special and really godly, would you include a bunch of terrible people in the backstory? Probably not. It speaks to the reality and the historicity of this text. They're not afraid to say, look it, there's some bad people in this family. There's some messed up stuff in this story. Right? Sarah and Rebecca, self-centered. Jacob's a deceiver. Judah commits incest. I'm not realizing it. The whole, the whole mess. David's an adulterer and a murderer. Rahab and Ruth are in here. They're outsiders. Jacob and Judah and Tamar and Bathsheba, they all have questionable character. Who in their right minds includes all these people in the lineage of a savior? God does. And that's exactly the point. Is all of these people, all these men and women, are all sinners. And Jesus is going to be the Savior for all of them. No one gets disqualified from the grace of God. His love is bigger and greater than your sin and mine. And God takes our human brokenness and our sin. I'm not talking your poor choices. I'm talking your really messed up stuff. Like, really bad. This is like criminal stuff we're talking about here, right? God is willing to take us at our very worst and redeem and transform us for his glory, to weave us into his story, to take us out of darkness and into light. As Joseph says in Genesis, what was meant for evil... God turned to good. How often is this the case? How hard is it in the moments where our lives look so broken and we feel so lost and we feel so, oh, it's just a mess. It's hard to think in those moments. God can redeem this. God can use this for his glory. Folks, it's true. It's so much easier in hindsight to see it, right? In the moment, it's tough. May I encourage you, if you're today in a moment that's especially difficult, where it looks really messed up, where you feel really messed up inside, where you feel broken, where you feel lost, don't exclude yourself from God's grace. 
He can come after Abraham and David. He can come after Jacob and Judah. He can come after you too. God chooses this family tree, all of its nonsense, all of its brokenness, to bring himself, to come into our world. It's this family that become Jesus' ancestors. God is quite comfortable with moving into the neighborhood of sinful, broken people and bringing about his glory. Your brokenness doesn't scare him. In fact, he comes, as we read the Gospels, to save sinners. Right? It's the sick that need a physician. And guess who that includes? All of us. That's part of why the genealogy is so crucial for us to get the sense of, of why it matters. Not just a list of names, but this is a broken people. This is a broken story. And yet, God, what about your life? What about your story? Can you look back and see how God has been at work? Maybe you can't yet. Maybe you're not far enough from the brokenness, far enough from that moment. But let me assure you, God wants to transform your sin, your brokenness, into a story of his glory, into his salvation. Jesus is the promise that God still moves into broken families to bring about his life. Here with Mary, we get another miraculous intervention, much like echoing Abraham. And this is God fulfilling the promise way back in Genesis 3.15 that someone from Eve's line, some human, down the road, will crush the head of the serpent. And here at long last, we're getting the answer. That's why the Bible takes such care to trace the family tree. Because you have a promise way back in Genesis, way at the beginning of the story, that God's going to undo sin and evil by someone who's a human. Little do we realize he's going to come himself in flesh and do it. So here we are with Luke, with Matthew, at the virgin birth, this long lineage. We see the human brokenness. We see God's amazing faithfulness. Turn with me back to Luke. Page 856, you've got it. And let's let's now think of Mary's response. First of all, what, a, what an encouraging thing that God moves into the brokenness of our lives and is willing to take us at our worst and save us and heal us and bring us into bring bring us to a seat at his table, you might say. Bring us home. But there's a call for us to respond to that invitation. God, as his arms reached out to you, how will you respond? You can take it or leave it, so to speak. And Mary becomes a bit of a model for us on how we should respond, what we should do. Notice that the angel is telling Mary, look at there's stuff that God's about to do that, uh, frankly, is a little bit beyond you. Uh, you can't really bring this about on your own. You can't drum this up. But there's still a call to Mary to do something, to respond in some way. The angel says in verse 35, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Jesus is not showing up just by any old means. Something very, very special is happening here. And then you get Mary's response. Verse 38, Behold, I'm a servant of the Lord. 
Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Very short. You know, I'm sure there was I'm sure there was other conversation that happened. But what we get here is is the gist, the short, the short response. Mary says, Okay. Mary, Mary says, let it be. It's, a, it's, this, it's this posture, this attitude of humility and willingness to submit her life, literally, her body, literally, to what God would have for her. To lay down her own agendas and her own ideas of what she would like to do with her life and say, yeah, God, I'm willing to put that down and step out and trust you with this. It's quite a big thing. There's no follow-up with the angel every couple of weeks. By the way, you know, here's how it's going. I don't know. There's this act of trust, of willingness to do her job well, to participate in what God wants to do, and say, yeah, I will be part of that. I will come alongside that. To say yes, to submit her life to the Lord. The virgin birth folks, it's all about God's power and intervention and the saving grace in human history. And God's at work in our world. And God's at work personally in our lives as well. And it's a reminder that salvation is not something you and I kind of bring up for ourselves. It's not our act. This is God's act. God does this. God's the primary actor here. God's the hero of this story. Definitely not Abraham. Definitely not Judah. He's really open. Right? This is God. God's, God's the hero. God coming to rescue us. And in this long line of individuals that we see in here at the virgin birth of Mary, we realize this is the latest miracle in God working in human history, overcoming obstacles, overcoming barrenness, overcoming defiance, overcoming rebellion, over and over and over to bring his good purposes to pass, to choose to work with you and me. Why on earth does he bother? Right? To still choose to love these people, even though we continue to run from him. God says, I love you this much. I still want you. Despite the brokenness, despite the sin, I still choose to move into your life, to move into the barrenness to move into the obstacles. And Mary's response reminds us we can lay down our lives and choose to go along for the ride, as it were, to say, yes, God, I will be part of this plan. I'll submit to you. I have to lay some things down. Question for us this morning is what is our brokenness? What is your sinfulness? Where where would you be in this long genealogy? What would you be remembered for? What bad things do you hope no one puts on your tombstone? Give that to God and then recognize he's actually willing and desires to love you and bring you through that. Of the other end, to heal you and to forgive you. You may also feel that I feel left out. Um, My family's messed up. I'm messed up. Um, why would God ever love me? And look at this genealogy. Look at this virgin birth. God takes the unexpected, broken, sinful people and says, yeah, you, still, you. I'll work with you. 
good to go. Still loves us, still calls us. And our task, as we see from Mary, is to lay our lives down, to respond, to repent and believe, as Jesus had put it in the Bible. All of this is the reminder that Jesus is fully human. He embraces our broken humanity. He doesn't just come uh, as some sort of superpowered being. He chooses to put on flesh. He chooses to be weak. He chooses, uh, as the old term is, to condescend himself. And, and because of this, conceived by the Spirit, he's not bound to sinfulness. And so Jesus is going to be the first in a new humanity. So 100% real, physical, flesh and blood human being. I don't think, I think it matters. You can't really get a much more intimate picture of God choosing to work with us than that of the virgin birth. Of really saying, Lord, I will give you my life by giving you this very body. And saying, yes, Lord, have your way. That's pretty good. There it is. There it is. Let's turn to our second passage, to John chapter 1. About the virgin birth, and the conceived by the Holy Spirit. It might be easy to think, okay, that's where Jesus shows up. Brilliant. There it is. But we also believe that Jesus is 100% God, God incarnate. God come to live with us. God with flesh on. That Jesus' uh, existence doesn't start at his virgin birth, so to speak. That's a remarkable claim. How on earth do we believe this? Here we go. Jesus is the pre-existent Son of God. Let me read to you verse 1. John 1, 1. This is page 886. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Very intentionally, and I've preached on this before, very intentionally echoing Genesis 1. In John 14, G, uh, John will, uh, verse 14, John will identify the word down here as Jesus. Uh, but first he locates Jesus' existence, not at his birth, but in eternity past with God. Now the Greeks, they had this philosophical concept called the Logos, uh, or the Word, and it was sort of like this impersonal like uh, it was like force. Suddenly became very Star Wars. Uh, the Greeks had an idea of a, this impersonal force that kind of ordered reality and, and just kind of upheld things by reason. Uh, like there was some sort of order to the universe. It wasn't totally all chaotic. Um, but it's impersonal. It doesn't relate to anyone. It's just sort of a thing. It's not a being. A John takes that and sort of turns it on its side. And he says, yeah, there is a word. Um, but it's it's this it's 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 actually going to be Jesus. It's this one who actually is in personal relationship with God, and more than that, is fully divine and is God. You go, it's with and is at the same time. How does that work? Well, if we could understand the end of God, you wouldn't be God by definition. There you go. If you can unpack the Trinity in its entirety, He ceases to be God. There you are. But here John indicates this word is in personal relationship with God. Um, this is sort of the building blocks of the doctrine of the Trinity, that we have one God who is a unity in community. You have three persons who relate to each other, are in uh, communion with each other. Um, they've always existed, and yet one God, complicated. 
It's mysterious. Um, there's always been groups that have claimed from this passage in John that Jesus is not fully divine, that the Son doesn't pre-exist. And in the early days, this was uh, brought about by a guy named Arius. Good old Arius. And Arianism claims, actually, uh, no, the word was God just means Jesus is a lowercase God. So you've got, like, God, and then you've got Jesus. It's like, like the little God like down here, the little Debbie God running around. But he's not God. He's just like little God. You've got a bunch of little gods. They're all doing their thing. You've got like, other people down here. You've got a whole little higher little guys running around, right? Um, but you've only got one God, one big God, and Jesus is just a big God. And uh, but he's made by the big God. Made little guy. Um, but if you look at the Greek grammar, that's it actually doesn't apply. That's not what John's saying. John's not saying He's this semi-divine little God, lowercase g God down here. John's saying, no, no. He's fully divine with God. God. And yet, there's something distinct between this word and the Father. And this is where you get the building blocks of, of, of the Trinity. Um, sidebar, Arianism still exists today in lots of different ways, and this is totally sidebar. This is one of the actual major differences between biblical Christianity and Jehovah's Witnesses, actually. You did know. Um, the JWs believe, what I get, what I, which is the text, uh, Trinity is not a word used in the Bible, so they don't believe in Trinity. Um, and so they want to emphasize the one God, yes, which, is really, which is really good. Definitely true, there's only one God. If you read the Bible, you will find actually there's three different persons referred to as Holy God in Scripture. You have the Father, Son, and Spirit, all being compellingly called Holy God all over the place. Uh, so the Bible affirms all three persons as having the attributes of deity, all part of creating, redeeming, uh, three in one. There's still only one God. And uh, so the doctrinal support for Trinity is, is really compellingly strong. Um, JWs who believe that Jesus is created, the little God, right? Created by Jehovah as the big God, and Jesus, little God underneath, um, he's actually Michael. And then when he's born in the virgin birth, actually, yeah, he's just a human. He's not already God, he's just a little, little human man. He's not God in human flesh. And when he's resurrected, he's just resurrected spiritually. It's not really resurrected. It's just kind of, kind of resurrected. I don't know how that works. The point is, folks, the New Testament writers go out of their way to great lengths to say, no, no, Jesus is Yahweh among us. And if you know Israel's scriptures, you'll see again and again all through the Gospels, they're saying, no, no, this is fulfilling the promise that God is going to come back and set things to right over and over again. We also know Jesus dies a real physical death. And you can read Lee Strobel's piece for Christ for that. He was a journalist. Uh, he was an atheist. And did his, said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to prove once and for all that none of this is real. And then as he did his research, he became so convinced he converted to Christianity. <laughs> gave his life to Jesus. He was like, well, the evidence pointed in this direction. So I guess my plan didn't work. Now I'm a Christian. <laughs> so you can read about that if you're interested. Um, and then the, the Bible makes such a point of saying, no, this is a physical resurrection, right? Such a point of see the scars, see it's really me, and then Jesus is like eating a fish. He's like, see, 
ghosts don't eat fish. And I'm like, right. <laughs> he's like, bacon breakfast. He's like, see, eggs and bacon. Wouldn't be bacon. Eggs and fish. Yeah, it's good to go. Let's do it. You know, no, it's a real body, real body. Also, if he's just resurrected spiritually, the whole Christian movement would have taken off the way. It just would. It just would. There's a lot of differences we could look at, but that's that's one of the one of the main kind of JW things. All that aside, that's my side part. What do I want to emphasize from this? That the Son, the Word, Jesus, fully pre-existence with God, which is amazing. And here we get the phrase "son," and that's where you get the idea of the little God. Son in this context, um, and you might also hear "firstborn." Firstborn of all creation or firstborn of the resurrection. You get that language sometimes. That means firstborn and son, that has to do with legal rights. And also that's a very Jewish thing, right? Your legal rights of who's firstborn and who gets what and all that. The whole genealogy thing points to that. But also it means you are, you are like the father. Um, you share the same qualities as the father. That's part of what son means. So Rowan is my son. Doesn't just mean primarily for them. Doesn't mean that I reproduced him, it means he shares my qualities and identity. Does that make sense? He also will share my identity rights. Oh, that's fine. You can think of ah, my four-year-old. <laughs> but that's what that means. So that's what, so for us, it's easy to see some of these words and, and attach our own meanings to it and kind of lose track of what's, what's trying to be said. But here's this amazing claim, folks, that God himself enters into our world, becomes flesh, and dwells among us, which means literally he pitched his tent. Uh, this illusion that God dwelling with Israel in, in the desert, right? This is the tabernacle in the temple language. And now God is taking up his residence through the incarnate word, Jesus. I love how Eugene Peterson used to put this, that Jesus moves into the neighborhoods. So folks, the meaning of our confession Conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. This is not a lowercase g God. This is not a person who achieved enlightenment or God status or was just a good person and loved people and was happy and taught people to be kind. This is God himself come to be with us. Why on earth would he come? John tells us, look at verse 11. He says, he came to his own, his own people. They didn't receive him. We see that all through the Gospels, as the, especially the Jewish religious leaders want Jesus killed. But verse 12, but to all who did receive him, think Mary, receive him, right? Let it be, let it be. Sure, I'll lay myself down. I'll join in what God wants to do. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. We're born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Folks, if you hear anything this morning about the virgin birth, about Jesus' pre-existence and all the theological technical language of that, the Trinity, hear this, God has come and given us this choice to accept, to receive Jesus into our hearts, into our lives, to believe on his name, and to all who receive, we are told here, he brings us into the forever family of God. And think back to that genealogy, that broken history, 
a long line of really messed up people. You probably got some messed up people in your genealogy. I do. I've got some people. I've got some people that never asked for forgiveness. That stayed pretty broken all their lives. People that were messed up from the war. People that didn't know how to say, I love you or I forgive you. People that were abusive. People that were alcoholics. I've got those people. You've got them too. So did Jesus. They were part of his family tree. And yet here God says, I will bring you into a new family. And I'm going to start a new humanity through this. Do you want new life? Do you want forgiveness and hope? Come to Jesus. Come be adopted. All this human brokenness, all this struggle, all this selfishness that we see in that genealogy, folks, is the, it's the reminder of the awful truth of our lives. But our own sinfulness and our sin puts us on the road to death. We've all lived it. We all know it. But the great news that we need to hear again and again, and that God's word announces to us today, is that he has come in the midst of our sin and made his dwelling among us. He still comes into the darkness to bring light. He still comes uh, to, to Mary's womb, as it were, to Sarah's womb, into the death of brokenness, and brings new creation. He still turns water into wine. And God invites us to come, just as he says here in John 12, to receive Jesus, to believe in his name, and to be adopted into a new family. Friends, in the power of the Spirit, this is the gift of Christ for you, that you can live. You can have a new identity. You can have new life. You can have new hope through Jesus. I believe in Jesus Christ, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, fully God, fully man, who brings us into new life through the cross and comes to gather us in our brokenness, in our messed up families, in our own sin, to bring healing, redemption, and new life. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you see us in our brokenness. You see us in our sin. Lord, you, you know, you know skeletons in our closets. It doesn't scare you. Lord, thank you that you have invaded our human history by your very self, and you've come to bring new life, new hope, most of all, Lord, to set us free from sin, to bring forgiveness through the power of your resurrection. Lord, I pray this morning for each one who's here Lord, it's easy uh, to feel weighed down with the guilt of things we've done in our lives. It's easy to think back and have regrets, things we've said, things, we, things we've done, things we, things we did do that we should have done. A lot of us carry guilt about the ways we interacted with maybe our parents or our kids, spouses, family. Lord, we don't have to, we don't have to imagine very far to be confronted with our own brokenness again. Be confronted with our sins. Lord, we have a response in that moment to either ignore it, say it doesn't matter, 
to wallow in the despair of it and say there's no hope, or to turn to you, to recognize that we need you. And so I pray today, and I thank you, Jesus, that you love broken people, that you're at work in the sin and the darkness in our lives, and you call us into your light, into new faith, into a new beginning. And Lord, today, we say with Mary, let it be. Lord, we invite you to come and do your work in our lives, to do your work in our homes, to be at work in our, in our workplaces and in our schools. Lord, in our minds, in our mental health, when we struggle with anxiety and depression, suicidal thoughts, Lord, we need you in that place. Lord, we need you in our city. We need you to enter into the brokenness of relationships and the brokenness in our schools and bring your life to bear. Lord, we need you in our, in our marriages, in our families, Lord, to bring new life. Jesus, we thank you that because you came as one of us, you redeem and restore us. Lord, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for the empty tomb. And I just pray today, Lord, your blessing and your peace upon us. Lord, for those that need to respond to this message, to respond to the message that you love us, that you are calling us out of sin and darkness, I pray that they would do so by simply laying down their lives and saying, Lord, I need you. Come into my life. Bring restoration. Remove and cleanse the sin from me. Lord, help me to follow you and walk with you. I don't want to be known for my brokenness in this painful genealogy. Lord, make me a new creature. Adopt me into your family. Lord, remind those of us who've walked with you for many years that we are indeed new creatures. Where we're battered down with the guilt and the, and the, the, the lies, Lord, of the enemy would say we don't matter, we're not good enough. Lord, may we remember the promise that you've redeemed and restored us, that you call us into your family. Lord, bless your people here today. And thank you that you have redeemed us so that we can go out into this city with the message that you redeem all broken people who come to you. Lord, may we be bold enough to share that good news with others. May you equip us uh, with a winsome, joyful uh, willingness to love people, to demonstrate how you transformed our lives. Uh, be willing to share that with others. Lord, I bless these people as they would head back to work, head back to school. Lord, that you would protect and bless and keep and go before and behind and pray. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for this morning. Your name. Amen. Amen. Uh, would you stand with me? We'll close with benediction. If you would like prayer, we'd love to pray with you. There'd be those up in front that would love to pray with you if you want to uh, want to pray or discuss anything we've talked about today. Um, just a reminder again, prayer tonight here at 7:30 on Princess Court as well. If you'd like to participate in that. But friends, before you go, receive this benediction. Children of God, loved and forgiven.
by our Lord Jesus Christ. May you remember his virgin birth, that he enters into our brokenness with his life, his healing, and his grace. And may you know that grace and that life and that healing and the brokenness of your life today and in the days ahead. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Mm-hmm. Friends, I love you. Go in peace. If you'd like prayer, do come up to the front. Have a great day.